We are here with the legendary, the great David Aldridge on this week's special episode of the Tampering Podcast. As always, I'm Sam Amick. Um, this is going to be a different conversation that I'm very excited to have. Uh, DA, always great to see you, even in these quarantine times. How are you holding up, my friend? Uh, you know, we're holding up, Sammy. It's a lot of, you know, we're all scrambling. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things going on that uh, work, home, family, life country everything right so you know you're just trying to stay above grounds and stay above water and um you know but hanging in there hanging in there um you know thankfully you've got people that are you know checking in it's always good to hear from friends and stuff so um, right doing okay well and and i couldn't agree more it's it's great to see your face i'm glad to see you have a little bit of the quarantine stubble going on i can't grow a beard this is a (laughs) this is six weeks i can't i got right yes i don't have i don't don't have the gene i don't have the this isn't this ain't the topic of today's pod but i mean do you not see when i do that i get the itchy face i'm miserable but you're okay with the the halfway in between it doesn't doesn't itch it just doesn't grow you know this is it i mean i shave you know very very lightly um, just to make sure I don't look like a, you know, like one of those guys searching for, you know, cans on the beach. With, <laughs> you know. Well, it's the beaches. Hopefully you're still closed, but yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, thank you for doing this. Listen, um, I was excited when, when our group started talking about having this conversation, because like everybody else watching this last dance documentary uh, has been surreal. And, and here's my prism is that not to make it about you and I too much, but it's like, you've always been very gracious to me, somebody who's been kind in the business who I've looked up to. And then you watch this doc and, you know, I knew how long you've been doing this. I knew how big a part of the game you were, you know, back when those bowls teams were at their peak, but it's a different thing. The human experience of seeing it on film sure. um, and combining that with you sitting in the chair and reflecting uh, what we wanted to do here today is to go, behind the scenes on the behind the scenes, if you will, and, <laughs> and, and have you take it, uh, take us through it a little bit. So I'll start with this, you know, the mere idea of the doc was a kind of a secret and a mystery for quite a while in NBA circles. We had all heard about this footage. You wondered, you know, if it might ever see the light of day, but for you, when does that phone first ring? And they say, Hey, DA, first of all, we're doing this. Second of all, we want you to be featured pretty pro- uh, prominently here. Um, well, I mean, I, I think Jason contacted me last year at some point. It was probably late spring, you know, and, and you know, I had heard that they had finally gotten at least, if not the cooperation of Jordan, at least the okay to use the film. Because as right. you mentioned, you know, I know a lot of people in NBA entertainment over the years, and that was kind of like their white whale, right? right. I've always heard about this million feet of film. We've got a million right. feet of film on Michael Jordan right. in the last year, and we we can't get him. We can't get him to sign off on it. We want to use it. We want to do a special. We want to do this, that, and the other. 
And then finally, I guess last year is when I started hearing that they had finally gotten him to kind of agree to, to let it be used. Um, so, so we just, it, because of work, both of our schedules, it took like weeks and weeks and weeks of kind of emailing back and forth for us to find a, a place and a time that, that worked for both of us. Um, so um, I finally met them. They came to D.C. Um, I want to say it was October or November of last year. Um, we, we they they rented a, a room in a, in a hotel here in D.C. and I went okay. down there and um, sat down with them. and And he had indicated to me they had already done most of the major interviews. Yeah, you know, so they had they had talked to Jordan at least once or twice. I know. I think they were still working on the logistics of Phil, but Phil had agreed to do it. It was just a matter of, of finding a time. But so when he told me that, I thought, well, okay, then I'm just, I mean, I understand how this works. In in, in TV, you need to be able to cover everything, right? Yep. Something yep. visual. So a lot of times when you don't have video of something, you that's when you use some talking head to kind right. of fill in details about what happened in a particular game or in a particular incident. So I thought that's what they want me to do is kind of fill in the cracks for stuff that they don't have video of. And I, I was fine with that. I didn't have right. a problem with that. Um, and so I thought it was going to be like half an hour that they would have, you know, three or four questions and maybe a couple of follow-ups and I'd be done. And, right. and I wound up spending almost two and a half hours with them uh, on this. And I was surprised that they wanted to talk about so many different things and they wanted to talk about so many different topics uh, and really drill deep on some of them. So I thought, well, okay, at least I know most of this will never see the light of day, right. but at least they've, at least they're being thorough. Okay. Right. So they have, they're, they're, they're trying to be, um, you know, documentary filmmakers to an extent, because you know, it's Jordan's, it's Jordan's baby. So right. there's only so much they're going to do. But um, so that was kind of the background of it. That's when we kind of found out that it, it was a green light and it was a go. And um, that was how we handled it, at least my end of it. So, I mean, one thing that jumps out to me is the idea. I've had a little bit of experience with, with this kind of a doc where in mine, uh, it was actually the same director, Jason Ayer, where he was doing something on on, on Kevin Johnson in Sacramento and the Saving yeah. of the Kings. For all sorts of reasons we don't need to get into, that doc didn't see the light of day. But <laughs> I had a, a bunch of notes and I had a heads up on everything they were hitting into. D.A., the idea that you didn't know all the roads they were going down yet still had the kind of recollection that you have on this thing is incredible to me. And I'm forgetting exactly which playoff series it was, but I, you know, I'm sitting there watching in the first couple episodes and I mean, you're talking about specific plays. You're, you're going <laughs> down memory lane in the kind of way that I mean, we're talking about 22 years. Um, yeah. So, I mean, was it, it was really, you know, most of that stuff top of mind, it sounds like. Well, I didn't remember everything, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I remember everything, but the big stuff you remember, like, you right. know what I mean? Like you remember Jordan scoring 54 on Starks. Cause I, I just, I just, to this day, I thought John Starks played one of the greatest individual defensive games I've ever seen anybody play right. in one game. He was phenomenal right. in that right. game defensively. And he, the guy scored 54 on him. Right. You know I mean? Right. That just right. tells right. you how good, how good Jordan was. I remember, you know, block, strip, block, block is kind of, we all yeah. refer to it now. I just, I was yeah. at the game. I covered that game. I remember the, remember thinking, oh God, they had to have fouled him like four times on that play. Right. And then going back and looking at the replay and going, no, they didn't. Right. <laughs> they didn't foul right. him, you know? Right. So 
Um, so you remember those big moments, certainly the switching of the hands in the finals and all those things. So, right. um, so those things are, are still front of mind, but you know, right. some of the granular details, do I remember everything that happened on December 30, 30th, 1997? No, right. you know, I hear you. and then those are the things that they probably left in the cutting room floor, but you know, sure. the big stuff you try to remember, you tend to remember. Let's go macro for a quick second. What are your, as a journalist, uh, I, I wanted to know what are your overall thoughts on this project? Because to me, one thing that doesn't get talked about much is that, listen, it has gotten more and more gritty as the episodes have gone on. The, yeah. the latest one, the fact that, you know, to an extent, they take the gambling question head on. Mm-hmm. They, they deal with, you know, a lot of the stuff that typically when a project has to be approved by the main character yeah. You're not going to see this type of a thing. But but I keep trying to remind myself that Michael still had to say yes. And for people like you who were there, um, mm-hmm. you know, how close do you feel like they have gotten to the truth uh, and how watered down, if at all, do you feel like this characterization has been? Well, I must admit, I mean, I'm not surprised they did the gambling kind of, you know, on a macro level. You know, I was, <laughs> I must admit, I was surprised they left the thing, the quote in about Slim Buller that I had. I was like, oh, they're going to talk about Slim Buller. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I kind of figured they wouldn't do that, you know? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I know what Ken Burns has said and what other people have said about it. And I understand that I was a history major. So I get that. Right. I understand right. that, you know, this is not, you know, David McCullough looking at Michael Jordan, you know, this isn't Doris Kearns Goodwin looking at Michael Jordan, right? Right, right. This is Michael Jordan's story as told by Michael Jordan, right? Right. So there, you have to allow for that. But I think, again, I think adults with some level of discernment can understand that, that there may be more, you know, to this than, than they're getting into. I'm just happy that they're talking about it at all, frankly. Um, So um, that he's willing to, that he was willing to answer questions about it, even from, you know, friendly producers, he was still willing to answer the questions. So, um, knowing how protective and secretive Michael has been over the years and unwilling to do many interviews, it was, it was a pleasant surprise that they were willing to have those topics be part of the the documentary. So my, I'm just saying it is what it is, you know, and it's the same thing with the Pistons part of it and the Isaiah part of it you know, there was a documentary done about the Pistons from the Pistons point of view, you know? So, okay. So you, maybe you watch that documentary now and you get their side of it. And so you can, you know, you know, so you have vehicles to kind of look at all of it and then make up your own mind about what you think. To drill down on that a little bit, you know, we, uh, Joe Vard and I last week, uh, or I'm sorry, this was just myself. uh, I talked to Steve Kerr for a long time about, Mm -hmm the last dance and about the comparisons with, you know, those bulls and his warriors and and the side story of how Steve never wanted this kind of a doc with his team. Right. Last season when, you know, Andy Thompson, the same videographer who shot last dance uh, was around the warriors a lot, Clay Thompson's uncle, but with Michael in particular, DA, uh, one of the things Steve talked about was how refreshing it has been just to a, just see him in this kind of stage again, but Mm -hmm. to see him, uh, let his guard down to see him actually tell stories and to be something closer to the guy that you all knew back right. then. So hit the rewind button and, and kind of, you know, cause honestly, DA for me, I've been covering the league since 2004 and mm-hmm. have had, you know, less than, I mean, two interactions with Mike ever don't know mm-hmm. him. He has been untouchable for when it comes to NBA media for the most part. 
Um, what has that been like for you? The guy that you knew back then, <laughs> that, that, that dark space in the middle from a public yeah. standpoint, and then, you know, what we're seeing now. Well, I'm just, I'm happy that people are getting to see more of the real guy, you know, and, you know, I have, <laughs> I frequently said if Michael were five, six, instead of six, six, he may have been a psychopath, you know, he might've killed people, you know what I mean? Like he's, a, he's an insane person, you know? And so, um, but that's what made him one of the greatest players of all time was because his focus and his, as I always refer to it, his black, the blast furnace that he had, that he would just accept nothing but maximum, uh, mental and physical, you know, commitment to winning right. is what really drove all of those players. And I think Scotty's at the top of the list to really, you know, maximize their capabilities as players. You know, now I, I do believe it would not have happened without Phil. I mean, I think Phil showed you with those teams. And then again, with the Lakers teams that he has an amazing capacity to reach people at different levels, you know, and to get them all to kind of pull the oar in the same direction. And that's right. very hard to do. That's right. so hard to do in the NBA, especially. Um, and so he just had that gift and was able to, to capitalize and, and use it with, with those Bulls teams. But, but Michael is just, you know, he's just a, a different guy. He's just different than, than everybody else. And he, and, and what I mean by that is not that he was any more driven than magic or bird or Isaiah or Elijah one or any of those guys. Those were all, you know, incredibly driven alpha male, you know, tough on their teammates, guys, all of them were, right, you know, right. um, but Jordan just had another level of that, you know, and it could, it could, it could run to cruelty without question, you know, and, and, you know, you had to have a really thick skin to be a teammate of his um, because he, he went after everybody and it was the same kind of dynamic that, that, that he had with Kraus. I mean, you can't, whoever it is, Scotty Pippen, Horace Grant, BJ Armstrong, Jerry Kraus, none of them are going to win a public relations battle with Michael Jordan. Who's right. going to win that? Nobody right. is going to right. win that. Right. right? right. And so you're going to, you're always kind of at a disadvantage. So that was the, you know, that was who that guy was. And, um, you know, it was a tribute to, I think a tribute to the Pistons, for example, that, that they made the Bulls change everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they made the Bulls fire a coach that got, gotten them to three straight conference finals. Then they made the Bulls change their entire offense in order to beat a, a great defensive team. And, right. you know, those are not easy things to do. So, um, because Michael is just so, so sure and so capable of doing whatever he wanted on a basketball court at his, at his peak. So, right. um, so I wanted, I'm glad people saw it. I always said the, the Hall of Fame speech, you should not, why anybody thinks that was a bad mm. thing was, I never understood that. That was exactly who that guy was. That's who he is. Yeah. That's exactly right. who he right. is. Right. You know, right. I'm glad you saw it. I'm glad right. you got the honest truth from him right. instead of him being kind of draped in this kind of, oh, shucks, I wasn't that good. No, he, he's still mad that, that he got cut from his JV team in high school. Right. right. You know, which I always love that story. Cause I mean, I get it, but sophomore year, you're not supposed to necessarily be on the varsity team, but when right. you're Mike, right. you should be there. Yeah. Right. I mean, varsity team. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. who he yeah. remembers Leroy Smith by name. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> he used Leroy Smith as his alias at hotels. That tells you how. Did he really? Oh yeah. Oh, for cool. years. That was his, wow. that was his alias at, wow. at hotels. 
And that's how twisted he is. <laughs> but, but I think it's right. twisted in a good way because that's right. what you had to be back then to win, to beat those guys in playoffs. So correct me if I'm wrong in terms of your career, but did you first come across Mike when you're at the post? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the first iteration um, because I guess he came in when he was 84. So I got there in 87. So, but, you know, I started covering the league in 88. Um, so, you know, obviously – <laughs> you knew right away that this was a different guy uh, and, and that his talent was on a, on a whole new level. Um, he's, he is, you know, the, he's the next incarnation of those types of really incredibly charismatic players. You know, Dr. J, uh, Julius, Ir uh, Julius Irving, uh, you know, all the way back to uh, Elgin Baylor and people like that that just kind of, when they played, you went, whoa, this, this is different, right? right, there's, not, right there's nobody right. that plays like this. Right. And so he was the next guy, but it was just at such a high level and at, and at both ends, offensively and defensively, especially early in his career that, yeah, that's, it was, it was apparent early on. So I started, you know, I did the game, the shot game in Cleveland. I covered that game. I covered all the Piston series. So yeah, I was familiar with Michael from a, very early on in his career. Well, and you you talk about the personality because talent's one thing. The league's full of talent, and and if it was talent alone, he's not going to be who he ultimately becomes. I wonder though, because I mean, we've seen time and again, new players on the come up trying to figure out you know who's going to be who and what their legacy is going to be. Do you have any stories that come to mind in terms of that that moment when you started looking at Mike and saying, "Man, this dude is wired differently," and this guy is got some of that crazy you talk about? Well, um, you know you would talk to players on the bulls and they would, you know, <laughs> there would be some eye rolling and some things like that, you know, about what a competitive guy he was. Right. And right. so there was always, you know, there was a famous story that he said, Will Purdue should be named Will Vanderbilt because he doesn't deserve to be named after a big 10 school. I mean, this, <laughs> who thinks of stuff like that? And you know, like, Come on, a know. guy who has his scorned high school coaches, his hotel. Yeah, areas. yeah, exactly, exactly. And then so you know, you I talk. We all talk to Tex Winter all the time, and Johnny Bach and the assistant coaches, just yeah. about how they had to make sure that that they tried to keep all of the scrimmages and practice as even as possible because Michael would would tend to dominate whatever right. group he was with, and it was really hard to kind of coach him, and you had to really, you know, Johnny Bach was a was a you know, a military guy. So he really believed in chain of command and it really right. bothered him that, that Michael would not follow the chain of command, you know? Right. And so, um, and, and Tex Winter was just this kind of genial guy that, you know, he wanted very badly for people to buy into his triangle offense. It was something that was very important to him. He was empowered by Jerry Krause, obviously. Um, but he could not, make Michael do it, but he tried in different ways over the years to get Michael to kind of engage in it and had, right. you know, successes and failures here and there. So, um, you know, just being around those Bulls teams, you knew that he was very difficult to kind of keep in the group because he was just so talented and he was so good. Right. I mean, he could score 40 anytime he wanted. It was not hard for him. Right. It's very difficult in a team concept when you have a guy that's that talented that can just do it on his own. And it got, it was very hard for him. And again, until Phil got there for him to really trust his teammates. I mean, right. I remember one of the, you know, the Pistons series where he tried it in the second half of one of the games in Detroit. I think he only took like five or six shots 
and nobody made a shot. You know, right. he passed it to Horace. He passed it to, you know, Pippin. He passed it to Cartwright, and they were fumbling and stumbling, and and he was just furious after the game, you know, because he's like, I, you know, he essentially said, I did it your way, and it didn't work. It didn't work, yeah. You know, and now we're down, the, now we're down in this series. So, right. um, you know, so that was a constant tug of war. Uh, with with the, not just the te- not just the coaches but his teammates as well. Right. Two things I want to jump into with you. You made it clear in the doc that when it comes to the gambling chapter, uh, mm-hmm. I liked how you framed it. You know, it's it is some perspective is necessary here. You know, and you've even tweeted about some of this stuff. That listen, if if the man you know bets ten grand on something and he's good for it, then what difference does it make? It is like you and I betting ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the stories. I had read the coverage from back in the day. But I'll be honest with you, DA, I'm looking at that element and that subplot in its totality. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm given the MJ shrug. Like that's yeah. that's what that's it. You know what I yeah. mean? And I and I understand you have some shady characters with criminal legal, you know, complications yeah. that took it to a new level. Right. But in all, how do you look back at the way that was covered? The, you know, the the black guy, so to speak, that it put on his legacy. Uh, that I do think is kind of getting massaged a little bit right now in a good way. But it's just incredible to me how little meat there was on that bone, if that makes sense. Well, see, somebody it's funny, Sam, somebody, I was talking with somebody this week and they pointed this out and I I had not really thought of it that way. And and, and so it's a, it's a very, very relevant point is that you have to remember the atmosphere in the late eighties and the early nineties when it came to pro sports and gambling of any kind. Right. right. It was just so different than it is now. I mean, Taboo, it, was, right? it was the nightmare scenario for any sports league, for colleges. You have to, you know, you have to remember that was right after Pete Rose had gotten banned for life. Right. For gambling on, on Reds games that he managed. Right? Right. right. That was right after or right around the time that there was the Arizona State point shaving scandal in college basketball. Right. And the Boston, it was right after the Boston College point shaving scandal um, in, in college basketball. So you had... These these really nightmare scenarios where, oh my God, what if our guys are in thrall or oh a gambler? It was right. the biggest, most awful thing. David Stern railed about gambling. Right. I remember, I think it was New Jersey. New Jersey as a state just wanted to have a statewide lottery. You know, they just wanted to, you know, start a lottery to generate more revenue for the state. Right. And I remember the NBA essentially filing a brief with in, in the lawsuit against New Jersey, saying this is this will be awful for the NBA wow. if there's gambling in New Jersey. You know, so, how times have changed, huh? Right. So yeah, I mean, yeah. that's how much they they were terrified of gambling connections um, right. in in pro sports. So um, in that context, the kind of if you want to say overreaction to the, to the Michael gambling piece is one thing. Now there's, there's gradations. Is it, it was not good that he owed Slim Buller $57,000. You know, Slim Buller was a shady character, you know I mean? So um, that's not good and you don't want that. But again, it's not, it's Michael Jordan, you know, even 57,000, which is a lot of money, no matter who you are. Right. But he's got it. You know, it's not like he doesn't have it. So um, I just thought that my my problem with the, with the Atlantic City thing was, was twofold. I thought there was an overreaction based on the fact that it was Dave Anderson who wrote the initial column for the New York Times. Yep. Dave Anderson is is again. I'm not. I'm not, I'm pretty sure he's the only sports writer who ever won a Pulitzer Prize for column writing. It might be him and Red Smith, but that's it. There's only yeah. two. 
or yeah. one or two. Right. You know, so there's nobody else in, in that room. So Dave, obviously. So the voice mattered a great deal. And yeah. the paper mattered, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the New York Times. It's the New York Times and it has right. cachet. And, and that right. he came out strongly against it, made it a story, right? right. And so we're all looking for reaction. But I just thought if you boiled it down to the essential elements of the story, which is man goes to Atlantic City, man gambles, man goes home. <laughs> That's it. Right, right, right. That's the story. You know, and, so and even like even I guess to combine the old era with the new, I mean, it made me think about the fact that even with social media and the fact that the world has shrunk in the here and the now, we don't cover these guys right now like that. You know yeah, what I mean? Like we're right. if we hear about LeBron going to Atlantic City at two in the morning like we're not writing it right it's, right it's just a different time right i kept asking in, at, at that point give me the hook give me the hook that makes this a story right if he had gotten in a car and gotten drunk and drove back to new york city that's right. a story right? right that's a story right right if they had, if the next game was at noon the next day and he was out till 4 30 in the morning sure that's a story right. yeah but none of those things were present <laughs> you know right. so Again, it is literally he got in a limousine with his dad, you know, and some friends and they went out to Atlantic City and then they came back to New York, you know. Right. So, again, tell me what the story is here. Well, and like the tragedy, like you know? the, the, we talked earlier about how he goes dark after that media. Yeah. And that's the to me, that's the tragedy of it is that for one, that the scene of his father addressing the media and right. basically saying y'all y'all are doing this to him and now mm -hmm. you know you're going to get a different version i mean for one because of what ends up happening to his dad it just kind of breaks your heart seeing that scene yeah even yeah. the idea that his father was now the middleman communicating with the media was something mm -hmm. we don't typically see yeah. uh but in terms of him then changing his stripes media wise was it really as simple as you think that was the demarcation line and and Absolutely. that was when things changed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so again, I think he was going in that direction anyway. You know, I just think the, the last, you know, the, the first five or six years he was in the league, it just wasn't like that. I mean, you, again, I've said, told the story many times in the old Chicago stadium, you know, when you went down to the Bulls locker room, his locker was the first one. As soon as you came in, it was the first one to the right. Right. And I can't, I mean, it happened multiple times because I was covering the bullets. Then they played in Chicago a couple times a year. And you would go in and he'd just be sitting there and he'd be, you know, signing his shoes or something like that or doling out tickets or whatever it was. Right. But you could just stand there and talk to him like a normal person. And he right. loved gossip. He wanted to know what was going on with the bullets. You know, are they going to trade Jeff Malone? You know, what are they, you know, what are they doing? They're going to fire the coach or whatever it was. Right. And he wanted right, to know right. what was going on around the league. And, um, but it got, it just got so big. It got so big by 93. Um, it just wasn't, it was just unwieldy. It was difficult. Um, and um, I think he was already kind of thinking about how much longer do I want to deal with this? That certainly was a breaking point. And again, magic said it. We, I remember standing there with magic at, at the, at the, well, it wasn't the Berto center. It was probably the multiplex. The Berto center may not have been open yet. Um, you know, after one of those practices and him telling a group of us, it wasn't a lot of us. It was a few reporters that he knew and I, he said, look, you guys are going to you're going to drive him out of this league if you right. don't knock this off because he's right. tired of dealing with you guys. You know, and that was when he started referring to all of the media as you guys. You guys right. want us to do this. You guys want us to do that. Right. And there was an anger and a disdain and all of those right. things that, um, that were unfortunate because he knew 
you know, some of us better than others, but he certainly had people in the media that he liked. You know, yeah. he knew Mark Vansel was a, he was a buddy of his, you know, right. he, he yeah. liked Mark Vansel. He liked Will Bond. I think he liked me, you know, I mean, we, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time together off the court, but he knew who I was, you know, right. so, um, but there were other reporters that he liked and that he would talk to. He liked Lacey Banks at the Sun-Times. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there was not like, he didn't come into the league hating the media. He didn't, right. you know, right. um, it just, he just grew weary, I think, of the constant, and they show it in the documentary, the constant same questions over and over and over again. And I think the Atlantic City thing, I think he felt it was unfair. I think there's the bottom line. He just thought it was unfair, and he was getting singled out because he was Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, that, that scene where Scotty is talking to the media in front, remember when, when Mike tries to pull him out of the arena? Yeah, right, right. And then right. he ends up talking in front of the bus, and, and Mike is sitting there honk. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And selfishly, I'm going to be honest, I'm watching that thing going, all right, like, you guys dealt with this back then. You know how it is now. We look at access, and it's getting worse, and there are times when guys, you know, don't want to deal with us. But yeah. I guess it's, it's been there for all of time. Yeah, well, Mahorn used to. It's funny. Mahorn would, especially, would, he'd do this with the with the TV guys more than the, than the print guys. But when you were in the Pistons locker room and the TV guy would come and start talking to whoever, you know, Dumars, whatever, Mahorn would just stand there and just shoot, just shout obscenities, just just to make the tape unusable. <laughs> you know, he would just do it, and right. you just go. I mean, it was just so. <laughs> Come on, porn, really? Right. <laughs> you know, but right. but that's you know, guys did stuff like that just to be different, right. you know. Right, no question. <laughs> uh, before we spin it forward, one of the other subplots they already covered that I, I I wanted to get your perspective on the Jerry Krause situation. Yeah, you, and I feel like you and Waz might have touched on this on your pod, the Hoops of Jason. Mm-hmm. But is Jerry Reinsdorf getting off the hook here? Because I Absolutely. feel like, sure. yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we just forget that. You know, one guy owns a team, the other guy is is a drill sergeant, so to speak. That's right. How do you see that? Uh, absolutely that way. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Jerry Krause was a designated shit taker. That's what he was. That's yeah. his job is yeah. to take crap for Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, because Jerry Jerry Krause is never going to unilaterally decide not to pay somebody, right? I right. mean, he's under, he's, a, he's an employee, you know, <laughs> like his boss says, this is what we're willing to pay, you know, and I... You know, there's famous stories about Jerry Reinsdorf, even, you know, at the end. And remember, you know, in 1991, Jordan made three and a half million dollars. That, yeah. that was his salary. That was his yearly salary from the Bulls. It wasn't until the last two seasons when he got the balloon payments. He got 30 and then he got 33 million. Um, and even then, uh, Reinsdorf was grumbling about it. You know, right. I mean, he had gotten the best player on earth for a decade right. at, at ridiculously undervalued dollars you know yeah. underpriced dollars and was still complaining about the money he had to pay him so right. obviously jerry kraus was doing the bidding of his boss um now well where i do think kraus has to take some responsibility is that you know he certainly you know the relationship with phil jackson that he had deteriorated and that's part as part he's got to take some responsibility for that. why not to get too far I mean, afield it's a good but, question um he I brought think, him up right i mean that was he brought him in. Not, he hired yeah, him. You yeah. know, he hired him and got him in and basically over Doug Collins' objections as an right. assistant coach. So, right. um, and, you know, I think he felt Phil should have been more grateful. Phil should. And then, you know, at that time, Sam, that's when the coach's salaries really started exploding. I mean, it was yeah. Larry Brown was make, suddenly made $5 million, $6 million a year. George Carl's making $7 million a year all of a sudden. Right. And so Phil wanted to, you know, and with justification, keep up with those salaries. Uh, and Jerry said no and, and continued to say no about it. Um, 
So, and it, until the end, until 98, when he finally gave him a, a decent deal uh, relative to other coaches. So, right. um, you know, that was, that became personal because I think Kraus wanted Phil to be a little bit more grateful, maybe a little bit more humble, you know, and didn't like the fact that Phil kind of let the team kind of use Kraus as their whipping boy and kind of the, 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 the guy that they could kind of rally around and against as a team and thought he should have been respected a little bit more for that. And Jerry Krause had an ego too and wanted his share of the credit for what had happened yep. uh, with the team. And, and so that got sideways. Um, and, and again, now this is where, you know, Jerry's not around to defend himself anymore. So I don't yep. know the, the, the essential truth of it, but I can tell you that Michael Jordan believes that, you know, his relationship with Krause just died in 86 when, when Michael broke his foot and he missed all that time and he wanted to come back and he was agitating to come back and he was pushing to come back and wanted to play unlimited minutes when he came back. And this is according to Michael. Now this is not, I wasn't in the room. This is according to Michael that Kraus said, you are the property of the Chicago bulls and we'll tell you what to do. <laughs> wow. And obviously for Has any, he said human- that publicly. Oh yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. He, he said okay. that to Sports Illustrated, and he, he said when they did a big piece on Jerry Krause many Good years Lord. ago, and he said that's where it went south with him with Jerry, and I, you can understand that if that's yeah, true. Yeah, right. You certainly understand him feeling a certain way about that word, right? So, right. Um, uh, but again, Jerry's not here to say that didn't happen, right? So, right. You can only take one person's word for it, but you know. So he so, never addressed it even before he passed. Obviously, not that, that you remember. Not that I know of. Maybe yeah. he told, you know, he may have talked to somebody at some point about it, but, right, right. Um, you know, but I do think there's an unfairness to the way people, you know, to the way the, you know, Kraus is being kind of displayed as kind of the arch villain, like the penguin, you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. not, that's just not, there's a different, there's more to it than that. I mean, know? his personality, obviously. Exactly. Didn't help. Fire. I mean, Didn't we, I don't know if you saw, we, we talked to, to Ronnie Artest last week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I mean, I laughed out loud really hard when Ron tells this story about how Jerry told him that, Hey, you know, number seven's going to be the one that's going to destroy those other six titles. Right. And the undertone was that like, why are you yeah. taking those six for granted? You know, yeah. it's a strange mentality. I mean, so certainly his, personality the optics of kind of who he was physically i mean that that fed into it but i just keep going back to what you said it's like he he wasn't an employee he was doing the bidding of somebody else yeah and you know jerry could have helped himself with being better to the reporters you know he was fine with me but i'm coming in you know you know how it is sam you come in from out of town you stay there for two or three days right go home you know and so they're you know, he was very cordial, you know, whether I was at the post or ESPN, I mean, he would answer whatever questions I had. Right. Um, but, you know, he was not good to the beat writers in Chicago. Right. You know, he con- constantly yelled at them and said they were the enemy and all of those terrible things, you know, and right. things that he didn't have to do. He could have curried favor. You know, I've always said, I don't care which one you pick, but you got to pick somebody that's going right. to tell your side. In a, in a right, right. Setting. Um, you know, and he never did. And it was to his detriment. Right. Let's spin it forward a little bit. Have you seen um, all 10 episodes at this point? What's your... No, see, I never got... I didn't get any screeners, so I don't know. I'm watching in real time like everybody else. All right, fair enough. Then I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but um, I know I'm excited for this weekend when you're talking about the Steve Kerr component uh, and and the infamous fight in 95 that kind of framed their relationship. Yeah. Uh, So we won't go down that road, but, but I'll throw it to you this way. 
because you were there all the time or a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And and I can relate to the idea of having lived through a team's experience. And then you see the coverage elsewhere and, and you're going through that right now. What, if anything, have you learned while watching this or is all of this old hat to you? I mean, revelations and surprises for you. I I can't say that anything has been, I mean, I did not know about the Jordan going to Dennis Rodman's room and running into Carmen Electra. That's a great story, right? Right. That's a great story about the practice. So that's, that's phenomenal. As Um, an aside, I would highly recommend this. I'm going to keep it G rated, but the LA times had a Carmen Electra interview as an addendum to that. That was pretty (laughs) mind blowing. Yeah. So that's checking it out. That was great. I mean, that was a great story. So some of the anecdotes are, are certainly certainly interesting. But, you know, I was there when they won and after they beat Seattle in 96 and Rodman dove off the balcony at this club we were at. I mean, right. that, is, that is just insane, you know. Right. So, um, but I... But hold on. I got, I got, I'm going to regret not following up there. Like, you got to tell that story. What, what, oh, yeah. what happened with Dennis? Where are you at? Okay, so this is this is after they, they won the fourth one because... Or, this was, no, no, the fifth one. I'm sorry. This was the fifth one. It wasn't the fourth one. The fourth one was the Father's Day. And Jordan runs in the in the room and collapses and cries. Yeah. So, but the, when they beat Utah the first time, so that would have been title number five. So that's the Kerr shot at the foul line to, to win the the big game. Um, the Bulls had a party. They were in Chicago, so they had a a party in Chicago after that game was over. And again, this tells you that it wasn't always like, you know bayonets at dawn with the media you know we knew where the party was going to be and they knew that we knew and they were fine with us coming it wasn't you know there were a few of us again people that they knew and that they were fine hanging out with so it was some bar in chicago it was and it was a two-story you know bar and they were on the second floor with us and then the first floor was just you know sit people just regular people coming in um so four in the morning, something like that. Um, all of a sudden there's this tumult as Rodman slowly makes his way to the front of the balcony, which is overlooking the dance floor. And then all of a sudden there goes Dennis <laughs> just dives <laughs> off the balcony <laughs> to the first floor. <laughs> and I went, I remember going, I think Dennis just killed himself. <laughs> you know? And I'm in no condition to do a story on it. <laughs> I hope he's not dead. You know, and so what, they, what, what was what was catching him? What what did he dive people, into here? People, it was a mosh pit. So he's you know? crowd surfing. All right. Yeah, and it was you know people were like, "Hey, come on down and have a drink with us," you know. And, right. and of course, he's not going to say no to that. But he decided not to take the stairs. You know, so, <laughs> that's the Eddie Vedder, the Eddie Vetter influence. Exactly. He was hanging out a lot with the Pearl Jam lead he band was, at that time. He was. He surely yeah. was. So yeah. So that anything that somebody says about Dennis, I usually go, yeah, that probably happens. <laughs> right. Well, even like talking to Steve last week, you know, Steve made this point that, and again, Warriors Bulls parallels, where he goes, you know, it's easy for everybody on the outside to say, why would you ever break that up? You could keep dominating. You can keep yeah. winning, but you have the human element. And he mentioned Dennis. He's like, you know, Dennis was running off to do, you know, WWF in the middle right. of the finals. That's where right. you knew it was coming apart at the seams a bit. Right. And I agree. I do agree with that. And he has said that there's no, I mean, you just, there's a shelf life to it. So yeah. even though Krauss was kind of ham handed in how he handled it, it would not have surprised me if they just on their own volition, maybe decided to either break it up. And Phil was always, Phil's famous for saying, 
a head coach has seven years, no matter how good the coach is. Right. And after that, they tune him out and right. it doesn't matter what he says, you know? Right. And so I'm sure he felt like I, he might've been pretty close to the end. So, the, right. but obviously we'll never know, but you know, I, I tend to think that, that, that Steve is right, that there's only so much of that, that you can take. And there's, but the problem is there's nobody as good as Rodman to replace Rodman right. with, right. <laughs> you know, right. so there would have been a drop off either way. Right. There's so much to pick from, but do you have a a one favorite MJ moment? Oh, I you know, I I've always the LeBradford Smith story always kind of you know, to me crystallizes who this guy was, um, what type of insane competitive person he was. Because I was there for both of those games, and it's you know I'm not guessing, <laughs> you know I, I I I covered those games as a beat reporter, and I knew LeBradford Smith, and I knew what kind of guy he was. Um, so I don't know if people know this story or not. Um, but essentially there was a back-to-back with the bulls and the bullets, um, in Chicago, the first night on a Friday and Washington, the second night on a Saturday. Right. So, um, the first game, LeBradford Smith, who was the first round pick of the bullets in 91, a good, but not great two guard, um, had the game of his life. He had the game of his life. He scored 37 points against the bulls. Not all of them against Jordan, but a lot of them against Jordan. Now, the, bull, the Bulls won the game because they were just better than the Bullets um, by a lot. Um, but it was the story was, wow, the Bradford Smith had this incredible game. Right. right. I was in the locker room after the game. I was talking to both teams. I know the Bradford Smith was very calm and very much humble and saying, you know, I just was lucky. He's the best. I'm never as good as Michael Jordan. I just right. was crazy lucky tonight. I made some shots. You know, I don't want to do anything. He's downplaying it. Right. Yeah, of course he's yeah. downplaying yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So the next night, the game's in Washington. Well, it's in Maryland at the Capitol Center at the time. And Michael Jordan, because he's Michael Jordan, scores 36 points in the first half. <laughs> 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 and it would have been 37, except he missed a free throw. <laughs> he missed a free throw. He otherwise would have had 37 in the first half. So he right. winds up with like 49 or whatever it is. Right, right. So after that second game, it is it is posited by Michael Jordan that LeBradford Smith had raised his ire after the first game by teasing him about scoring 37 against him by saying, hey, nice game, Mike. And being, as they came off the floor, right? As they came the off the floor yeah. and, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, patting him on the back, like you know, I'm gonna get you too. I'm gonna get you in the next night too. Right. And it's it's complete nonsense. It never, <laughs> happened. never happened. He made it up. He totally made it up to give himself a reason to be angry uh, the next night. And he was angry, and he scored 36 in the first half. So that's why that happened. Man, I don't have this kind of juice. I this is the moment I wish I could like now bring a third screen in, and we'd have Mike here to argue. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's all it's back, complete. Yeah. What happened was Phil in the locker room after the game got on Michael. You're gonna let LeBradford Smith score 37 so on he you? He made it a thing, yeah. Yeah, he totally made it up. Right. <laughs> so, that's great. That's awesome. That's who he is. He makes right. stuff up. Right. <laughs> no. What do you think overall? What what are your where do you land on on how uh if at all the way that Michael is viewed? I mean, you got so many kids who are now getting exposed to his game yeah. first yeah. time. And then you have people who only knew him as the unsuccessful owner right. uh, in Charlotte and the guy who, you know, he just, you didn't see interviews. You didn't get his personality. Right. What do you think it changes about the way his, his image is now? Well, I hope, you know, you hope that people understand just how competitive the game was back in those days. 
you know, the rules were so different. There was so much more physicality um, allowed in the game at that time. And because there was very little free agency, next to no free agency at the time, um, teams tended to stay together. So you had animosity building up and real rivalries building up over a four or five year period. And so, um, you know, those teams really did not like each other. That was not, you know, there wasn't theater involved with that. Right. You know, when what Michael said about Isaiah Thomas, he really believes that about Isaiah Thomas, you know, you know, he doesn't like him, you know, and, and the Pistons did not like Michael Jordan. You know, I, oh my gosh. And they didn't like the Bulls. I mean, I can, I can't tell you the stories that after the, after the migraine game, the things they said about Scottie Pippen in that locker room, Is that right? I can't, I can't even repeat them on a podcast. You know what wow. I mean? Wow. So, I mean, it was real, you know, right. so, and it was the same thing with the Lakers and the Celtics. Listen, I mean, yeah, even now, Bill Lambeer goes on on the jump and he's still yeah. shots. You know, yeah. you got Horace dropping the P word on the dot. Exactly, exactly. Oh, you know, yeah. so that those guys did not like each other. You know, so I want and I, I hope people understand that because of those those you know differences in the in the game back then, um, the the competition was just so vivid. Right. Because it was really based in real dislike and real a real desire to to dominate the other team and the other star players. Right. Um, and and it's not that it's better than it is today. It's just different. That's all I just tell people. It's just it's just different. Right. But that doesn't mean it should be diminished. You sure. can't look at a box score and say, well, it was only 89, 87. How much how entertaining could the game have been? Right. You have to, un- you know, watch it, the game, watch yeah. the game, you know, <laughs> and understand the context of these two, of these two teams that are playing against each other. Jer- you know, the great columnist in New Jersey, Jerry Eisenberg, used to always have this. He had this incredible, wonderful quote about Ali and Frazier when they had the three epic fights. Mm-hmm. He used to always say they're not they weren't fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world. They were fighting for the heavyweight championship of each other, you know? And so if you, if you understand that, then you understand how, how visceral the war was between those two, you know, inside and outside of the ring. And that's what made the fight so compelling because you know, they really did not care for one another at all. Right. No. And so that makes it so, that gives it so much context. Um, and so I hope that people watching this documentary understand that that's what the NBA was like in the eighties. Right. That's what it was, man. I mean, that was, and you know, that's not even, you know, teams that weren't even good enough, like, you know, the, the Bucks teams that won 50 games every year, you know, yeah. some really good Spurs teams, you know, some really good jazz teams back in those days. And they just, they weren't good enough, you know, right. to even be in, in the discussion, you know? So um, that's how, that's how vital those, those matchups were. So I hope people understand that. And I hope they're getting some sense of Michael's drive and his, his, just the way he looked at the world and how he wanted to dominate everybody. Right. You know, and that's what made him the great player that he was, you know, one of the, you know, I think the best player I've ever seen, you know, in person, I didn't see Bill Russell in person. I didn't see uh, Wilt in person, but the best guy I ever saw was 23 and it's it's not even especially close to me. All right, my friend, I'm going to leave it on that high note. You, uh, you effectively gave me chills as you're breaking down, you know, the old days. Uh, And I do wonder even today's players, you see some of their reactions on social media, you know, I feel like if you if you if we could roll the ball out right now, you'd see dudes 
maybe competing a little bit differently than they did, you know, before. It seems like they it's impacting players. Yeah, they would have. I, I, you know, LeBron plays in any era. You know, he's great right. in any era. Right. Um, it would have just been different. That's all. Right. He would have played in a different way, but he right. would have been great because he's a great player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just different back then. <laughs> right. Good stuff. Thank you for doing this. Uh, sure. Congrats on. I mean, I know it's a weird congrats, but you, you, you know, your knowledge and your insight on this doc has been a lot of fun to watch. Appreciate you doing this, DA. Be good. Thanks, brother. Sam, my, my pleasure. Stay safe, my friend. Yes, sir. Be good.